what had happened was murder happened. Yeah, a lot of it. <laughs> and a lot of it. <laughs> Perfect. Is that good enough? That's good enough. We I, got to- I totally blew that, did I? <laughs> That's good enough. Murder happened. Yeah. Murder happened. That's what happened. <laughs> Thanks for finding the What Had Happened Was podcast. I'm Amelia Robinson from Dayton.com, and I have one question for you. Do you like murder? Are you a fan of suspense? Okay, that was two questions. I brought back one of my all-time favorite guests for this bloody good episode of the What Had Happened Was podcast. I'm talking about Angie Hoshar from Woodland Cemetery. There are thousands and thousands of stories at the historic holy ground, and some of them involve M-U-R-D-E-R. That spells murder. Angie shares the tragic story behind Betsy Little's Bridge, a mother murderer that ended up in a place far worse than jail, and the South Park mom who gave her daughter one fatal whack. But this episode is not all about the creepy stuff. Angie tells us about her favorite story, that of famed former slave Jordan Anderson and the legacy he left behind with the help of one of Dayton's most well-known citizens. The What Had Happened Was podcast is a project of Dayton.com, powered by WHIO Radio, your Dayton station for news, weather, and traffic. Don't forget to subscribe to the What Had Happened Was podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, iHeartRadio, and wherever you find your favorite shows. Select episodes can be found on the WHIO app for Roku, Fire Stick, and other services. Now, here's that murder I promised you earlier. So, hey, Angie. Hi. It's been a while since you've been in here. It has. You're the first guest who's been on twice. I am. Yeah. That's so exciting. <laughs> it's because I have great stories. Yeah. Everybody has a story. Uh-huh. I had a story. What was that? Remember? Yeah. During my last one. Yeah. Remember, I had a story. I had my own story. Literally, everybody does have a story, though. And that's one you th- have a story. Yeah, I do. Every day is a story. Every day. Every moment of life is a story. That's true. <laughs> Some of those stories you don't want to be written down or photographed, but they're still stories. I don't know. I've seen your Facebook page. You've been photographed. <laughs> <laughs> a couple times. <laughs> At least once or twice. It's a spooky, spooky season, and you're, like, totally busy. I know that. What have you been doing? Everything. Um, I'm trying to keep all of the residents in at Woodland inside the gates. <laughs> it's It's hard. Yeah, but they're like busting the seams to get out. Yeah, but I do my best. I keep the gates closed. We're all good. But the axe murderer lady, right? Right. <laughs> okay, so I don't think a lot of people actually know this story. The daughter and the mother used to fight or something, right? Right, right. Yeah, your typical teenager. This is in 1867. This happened on Oak Street right behind Miami Valley Hospital in the South Park District. So on Oak Street, if you're familiar with that. It's 1867. So imagine Little House in the Prairie, Mrs. Olson and Nellie Olson. Okay. <laughs> That's what I tell people. Okay, I'm like, get this scene in your head. You got Mrs. Olson and Nellie Olson. And of course, they fight all the time. Supposedly, the mother... Christina Kett asks her daughter, Christine Kett, to make the afternoon biscuits for the dinner, which was always the afternoon meal. Dinner was afternoon meal and supper was the later day meal. Asks her to make biscuits for the dinner. And for whatever reason, Christine, the daughter, does not do them. And they get in a fight. And in a fit of rage, Christina, the mother, takes a short-handled axe and hits her daughter on the head crushing her skull, which of course then caused her to fall down a flight of stairs where she lands in a pool of blood. 
crazy so, dramatic. Crazy dramatic. And the mother in 1867 has the wherewithal to cover up the crime. What she does is she runs upstairs to her son's bedroom, gets his revolver and his powder flash, runs back downstairs, dips her daughter's fingers into the powder flash, rubs it across her daughter's face and puts the gun in her hand to make it look like a suicide. And then Mrs. Kett, she cleans herself up, removes all the blood from her clothing, and then she heads downtown on a shopping trip so that there are witnesses. People saw her on a shopping trip down, downtown. Oh, she couldn't have killed anyone. No, that's right. That being very populated area, brothels and other things that were going on at the time. So word is spreading downtown that there's been an axe murder. So Mrs. Kett, hearing this, starts walking home. And as she's walking up to the house, people are like, oh, Mrs. Kett, you don't, don't want to come. Go in there. You don't yeah. want to go in there. You don't want to see what's happening. She pushes her way through the crowd and she's, oh, my God, what happened? My daughter, who could have killed my daughter? And she just goes into this big drama. Uh-huh. Academy Award performance. So her brother, who had found her, is a suspect because he came home from his job to eat dinner and found her lying on the floor. She had a boyfriend. He was a suspect. There were brothels in the area, so there were always a lot of different men. They were all rounded up, and, you know, they were suspects. Even the mother was a suspect. But for whatever reason, police could not find any identifying information or clues to pin it on anybody. So Mrs. Kett moves out of the house. She can't live there anymore. She actually moves out of state, but she's so distraught that she moves back. And it takes 17 years before anyone finds out who murdered Christine Kett. Because on Mrs. Kett's deathbed, she says to her son, I need to tell you a story. And she proceeds to tell the whole story. And she says to her son, you have to promise me not to tell anybody. And it took him about two weeks before he headed to the police and the newspapers and then told the story. And then the uh, murder was solved. But like she run lives and everything else. Oh, my gosh. Can you imagine? Can you imagine living with that? Can you imagine having the wherewithal to clean up that crime? Yeah. And, 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 go, shopping. Eight, and go shopping. This is 1867. Who? Mrs. Cat. That's Mrs. Cat. That's <laughs> yeah. it, I guess. So, you know, Kett, like I'm not going down with this. No, yeah. no. And, you know, she didn't. She didn't go down for it. But. Boy, can you imagine the guilt her entire life? Maybe, but maybe no guilt. Maybe she was, like, you kind of think, well, maybe she was a horrible person. <laughs> like, just because all we have is the accounts from the newspapers and the right. different whatevers. Maybe she's just like a psychopath. Maybe. You know, uh, uh, mental health, they didn't have mental health screenings back then. Maybe something was wrong. But, you know, I think a lot of it is just mothers and daughters that fight. But, wow, that's, that's extreme. That's a fight. Because <laughs> you would have to wipe not just anybody's blood, but your daughter's blood off your body. And I can't imagine that it was a pretty crime scene. I mean, you're talking an axe in the yeah. skull. I mm-hmm. mean, that is... And falling down the stairs. And falling down the stairs. And then running upstairs to get the gun and, the, and like the framing your son almost kind of oh, thing. It's yeah. like crazy. That is awful. Awful stories. But people like to hear and that's why they come to the cemetery and take the tour <laughs> so what is the favorite story of people who do the mayhem i think bessie little they like to hear the story because it's it's been part of the uh, courthouse reenactments mm-hmm. to tell you the story bessie little young woman 
unwed and unfortunately pregnant. And her parents know that she's pregnant, so they've disowned her. And this is like 18-something. 1896. She's murdered on August 28th, 1896. You know how we've had this huge heat wave. It's finally broke, but up through October, it was still in the 90 degrees. So it was like that back in 1896 when this happened. And a gentleman decided he was going to take a dip in the river to cool down. And while he's in the river, he finds the body of Bessie Little floating in the river. So, of course, the police are immediately called and they go through all kinds of um, investigation. Um, And Bessie's parents had disowned her because she was pregnant and they didn't claim her body. So she was buried in what is known as the city lot at Woodland, which was like the pauper's field. Yeah. She was buried. Then Does she even have a headstone? She does. Okay. Well, at her final burial. And I say final because during the course of the investigation, she was buried. Then they dug her up and they did some more investigation on her body and then they buried her again and then albert france who actually committed the crime said that bessie had shot herself twice in the head twice in the and head that's why it's a crazy story that's why it's crazy so how are you gonna shoot yourself twice in the head you're right so they <laughs> dig her back up for a second time they do a thorough investigation and now they find bullet holes in her head how they could have missed that the first time. Although, if her body had been in the river for a couple of days, all of the blood would have come out. She probably had a full head of hair, so they may not have seen mm-hmm. that she had the bullet hole. So I'll give them that much. But the rest of it is unbelievable. So yeah, anyway, shot twice in the head. They shot in the, and, twice and the in the head. They kind of believed him at first. And... Yeah, yeah. So they go to his home, to Albert Francis' home. Well, where's the carriage you were riding in? Oh, that burned in a fire last week. Well, how convenient is that, right? (laughs) So, you know, Albert denies, denies, denies. He's not confessing to anything. Well, everybody had seen him with Bessie. This was the last person Bessie had been seen with. He had paid for her hotel room downtown where they were meetings. It figured on him. During the trial, he's on trial. This is like the trial of the century, 1896. There's three newspapers in Dayton and three newspapers in Cincinnati covering this trial. The courtroom is packed and what they do to prove that Bessie could not have shot herself twice in the head <laughs> was they bring her head into the courtroom in a glass jar. Of course, women are fainting, men are fainting, and it takes the jury just 45 minutes to convict Albert France, and then he is sent to the electric chair. Maybe it's retribution that because of what he did and because of how he killed Bessie, because she was pregnant, and because he denied, it took five jolts in the electric chair for him to meet his demise. He's buried in a New Carlisle cemetery called Studebaker Cemetery. His grandmother was a Studebaker, and that was the reason why he killed Bessie. When he was, he stood to inherit a large amount of money when he turned 21, and he was almost there. And unfortunately, Bessie was the girl from the wrong side of the tracks. Who was getting in his way because she wanted a relationship. Right. And he didn't. So after the trial and everything, Bessie's parents come forward and say, we are so sorry that we denied her. They then purchase a lot at Woodland Cemetery. They bury her for the third and final time. That's crazy. Yeah. And also the bridge, too. Right, right. So a lot of people will know where this happened. When I do programs in the community, of course, I have a lot of photographs. So I always show the photograph of the bridge. The bridge that this happened on was over the Stillwater River at the Ridge Avenue Bridge, which leads into Triangle Park and then over on the far left-hand side would be DeWeese Parkway where the Boonshoff Museum is at. So it happened on that bridge. And of course, for a long time, the bridge was known as the Bessie Little Bridge. Right. 
And then some people say that in the evenings you can see a woman in a white dress floating around the river. Creepy stuff. Creepy stuff. So the next time you're on Riverside Drive, take a look over. Yeah, just see if you can see Betsy. She she might be still there, like ticking off at her parents still. Like, That's come right. on. <laughs> Poor girl. Poor girl. She wasn't that old either. She was like She was, I think if she was twenty, I'm not as sure of her exact age. Yeah, she was a young girl. Right. In, in love or whatever or right. in, in trouble in and in trouble and just wanted to make things right with her boyfriend, but everybody was saying that she was crazy and that he said at trial that she talked of committing suicide because he wasn't going to marry her. And so he really played it up that she was the one who... It was off her rockers. Yeah, yeah it was she off was her the rockers. Problem. But when they find two bullet holes in her head, there's no way she could have shot herself twice. Even the fact that that was a defense is just amazing that it kind of like almost worked. You know what I mean? Right. But this says a lot about the time, too. Oh, yes. Yeah. That women were really treated as second-class citizens that, you know, they weren't valued as a human. Well, yeah, she's probably PMSing or whatever, you know, things like that. And, and you could be put into the insane asylum for stuff like that. Yeah, you know, for being pregnant and for, being a yeah, girl. Yeah, and, yeah I for mean, any just reason. For any reason. Well, which is what happened to one of the other women who supposedly killed her mother, Mary Knight and Catherine Hark, that story. The daughter, Mary Knight, tended to drink a lot. Of course, then she and her mother fought all the time. And her mother was the widow of a Civil War veteran. Um, she was making $12 a month, then also taking in laundry and doing other work to sustain herself and her daughter, who had been married but moved back home because her husband left her because she was a drunkard. Mary Knight and her mother, Catherine, they fought all the time and oftentimes the police were called and sometimes they weren't. Well, one day there was this ruckus and people wondered if they should call the police and finally yelling stopped and then they see Mary walking down the street with a little sway in her step and then they thought, oh, she's just drunk again and didn't think about it. Well, she comes home later and she's standing on her front porch and she's screaming, help me, help me, somebody help me. Gentleman walks by and says, what can I help you with? She says, look, look inside. And then you see this woman lying on the kitchen floor in a pool of blood. So the gentleman tries to go through the front door and Mary's saying, no, you can't go through the front door. You have to go through a window, which he thought was very strange. Yeah. But, you know, he went through the window. And then when he gets inside, the door's not locked. It's open. He opens the door. Mary runs in, lays down and by her mother, and she's crying and everything. Well, of course, the police are called. And by the time the police get there, they can still smell alcohol on her breath. So they're questioning her. Why did you kill your mother? And she's like, I didn't kill my mother. I, there's no way I would have killed my mother. My mother was my best friend. Chief of police says, well, this is what killed her. And he picks up a stovepipe yeah. that's got hair and blood yeah. matted to it. So he takes Mary down to the courthouse to let her sober up. Then the next day, he takes Mary to the funeral home where her mother is laid out. And he starts questioning her. Why did you kill your mother? And again, I didn't kill my mother. My mother was my only friend, my best friend. I love my mother. She was convicted via circumstantial evidence, you know, that people saw them fighting, that the stovepipe, blah, blah, blah. So she was convicted and was sent to one year in the women's prison. And then she served her time. And she got out. So I was doing some more research on this story. And I found that she's listed in the Dayton City directories for about another year. Okay. And then all of a sudden she disappears. And she doesn't die until 1940. I was, again, doing some more research. And I just happened to, because the mother, Catherine Hark, is buried at Woodland Cemetery with her husband. And I was like, well, where is Mary Knight? Suspending the suspense for just a minute. 
to remind you that you are listening to the What Had Happened Was podcast. And if you're looking for what is happening now, see what I did there? It kind of worked. There is only one source for you, and that source is Dayton.com, your number one source for what to do, what to know, and what to love about Dayton. And just so you know, Dayton.com will soon be taking nominations for our Best of Dayton contest. It is your chance to help the Gym City's best people, places, restaurants, and things secure a spot in the Best of Dayton contest. But that's in the future. We're talking about the past. Now Angie's going to tell us what happened to Mary Knight. And I did a search in our own records. She ended up spending the rest of her life in the Dayton State Hospital at the Insane Asylum. And she died there and is buried in the Insane Asylum Cemetery, which happens to be on an unopened portion of Woodland Cemetery. Get out of here. I know. I was shocked when I found this. You know, because I've done this story before for a story, um, an article rather, Mm -hmm. And I didn't never knew what happened to her. I assumed she went away for a lot longer than exactly. a year. Exactly. Nobody knew what happened to her. She ended up in the insane asylum. And what we were talking about earlier, that women could just be thrown into the insane asylum. If you were a drunk, you could be put into the insane asylum. Well, back in the day, the insane asylum was not pleasant place. a pleasant place. And you literally would go insane in the insane asylum. They threw you in a room with people who really truly did have mental health issues the medication that they may or may not give you you know treatments they may or may not give you yeah the treatments and if she was a drunk and and maybe she had dts and so there was a lot of issues you know back in the day but that's what happened to her so I, i was shocked when i found that out but yeah she spent the rest of her life in the insane asylums probably spent 30 years there get out of here that's crazy isn't that horrible it's like a fate worse than worse worse than jail Yeah. yeah You're in hell, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was not a pleasant place to be. There's a lot of murder, let's be honest. Mm-hmm. Here. But there's certain stories like the ones we just mentioned that are just like rise above. Why do you think that is? Well, it's like a car wreck. You can't stop looking at it. And I, I think because everybody has a story. There's 110,000 people buried at Woodland and everybody has a story. And of course, the victim or a perpetrator of a crime, they have a story too. And They're buried sometimes right next to each other at the cemetery. To tell those stories, people are fascinated by what happened. But the stories that I just told you that happened in 1867 or, you know, 1896 or the early 1900s, those are stories that you can find in today's headlines. And I think that it's unbelievable that crimes like that happened back then because we think of it as a more innocent time. And it wasn't really innocent. If nothing else, people were trying more to be a part of society, but society worked against them so much. And I think that we're fascinated by somebody who came about, made themselves better, or they really got what they deserved. Like Albert France, who was electrocuted and sent to jail and was electrocuted because he killed Bessie just because she was pregnant. So who doesn't like to hear the underdog, get something good coming out of that story. Like justice a little bit. Yeah, a little bit of justice there. And Christina kept, were fascinated by the fact that it took 17 years before somebody found out what actually happened to her. How could somebody hold a secret for 17 years? And her mother, no less. Yeah, and killed her with a short-handled axe. That had to have been horrific. I mean, the blood splatter, the everything that would have happened there. And then to find out about Mary Knight, and then she spends the rest of her life in an insane asylum, 
you know, she's put away just because she has a drinking problem. So I think we're fascinated by how law ha- worked back then. Albert France, it only took nine months for him to be tried, convicted, and executed. Nowadays, it's 25 to 30 years. Justice was quick and served back in the day. And I think that people are fascinated by that too, to know that there was no messing around. If you did the crime, you did the time and you were put to jail, you were, and sometimes you know, if you didn't do it, <laughs> and sometimes, well, yeah. And sometimes if you didn't do it, yeah. but you know, it talks about our criminal justice system. It talks about the times, times they are changing. Not really. Right. <laughs> They're really not changing. They're, we still hear these horrible crimes that happen today. These crimes 100, 150 years ago could happen today just as easily. You're telling me that you work in a mausoleum. Right. What is that like to work around all those dead people? <laughs> well, there's 5,500 of them versus me. So like you said, when the zombie apocalypse comes, I'm outnumbered. They, yeah. can, they can just take me. I'm good. Might as well not even try to help I'm you. I'm not even, no. Nah. It's actually very quiet during the day. There are visitors that come and visit their loved ones in all seriousness. And I do get to know the people that are coming and visiting. And I know them. I know who they're visiting, their loved one. I've heard stories. And that's really remarkable to have someone share that type of information with you. The mausoleum closes at five and sometimes I'm still there at 6 30, 7 o'clock at night and I hear things. I'll be honest. I hear clicking. I hear movement. So it's fun. There is one woman who likes to say hello. Hello. Does hello. she say it like that? No, she just says hello and like that. And I'm like, hello. Kind of like I cheerful and hi, how are you? I acknowledge your presence. Please don't spook me. This is the thing. I have been out. In the cemetery, I've been a longtime photographer for Find a Grave as a volunteer, and I've been in certain cemeteries, including Woodland Cemetery, where I have felt a presence, like I know that I wasn't alone. My key phrase is, I acknowledge your presence and I mean you no harm. Huh, yeah, I'm going to remember that one. I acknowledge your presence and I mean you no harm. Say it, it'll go away. But you've never felt any that were like crazy wanting to get you, have you? No, 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 no. I've had some moments where they've helped me find somebody. I don't want to say pointed me, but they steered me in the right direction. Uh. When I was up at the Ohio State Reformatory Prison in Mansfield, I took my kids there on summer vacation one year. That's cool. And it is way cool. And I walked into a room and it was super, super hot. It was like a July afternoon. It was like 90 degrees with a thousand percent humidity, you know, typical Ohio day. And when I walked into this room, every hair on my body stood up and I got super cold. And I said to my kids, where's that air coming from? It feels so good. And I was snapping pictures and everything. It wasn't until I got back and got my pictures back and was looking at them that there were three orbs Wow. Perfectly formed orbs. One was very large. And in the photograph, there was an old, like a 1940s covered chair in the corner. And it looked like a silhouette of a man was sitting in that chair. The largest of the orbs was uh, just above his head. Wow. And I didn't realize it at the time until I saw that photograph. And then I went, oh, my God, somebody was there. And you don't want to know who was somebody was there in the man. Uh, yeah, I'm yeah. good with it. I'm good not knowing. But yeah, because that's some creepy people who are in there. But I think after that moment, I have become more aware of it when mm-hmm. it happens. Because that moment, I think, was like the turning point of when I 
was really open to it. And I think maybe you have to be open to it, to whether or not it's ever going to happen to you again. And it doesn't happen to me all the time. And it's not like I walk in the mausoleum and people are, you know, screaming things at me or not that, but I just oftentimes feel a presence and I don't ever feel scared or creeped out by it. I just say, I acknowledge your presence and I mean, you no harm, or sometimes, you know, whether it be hello and sometimes in the morning, like when I walk into the mausoleum and I'm opening my office, sometimes I'll just say, good morning, everyone. Oh, <laughs> you know, just the, let's, let's have a great day. Let's, let's, let's make it a great day. <laughs> You would be a good roommate to have for your dead person, I guess. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I, thank you. I think. I don't know. What, yeah, it's kind of hard to. It's okay. You know, turn it into a positive. I guess. <laughs> that can go either way. Oh, my. You've been doing all these tours. Mm-hmm. What's been your favorite story to tell? Um, When I'm out on the grounds, I think it's either the Stanleys or Madame Richter. I think those two still are the most interesting. When I'm doing the history, mystery, murder, and mayhem, I think maybe Christine and Christina Kett because they are the axe murderers. It's a mother and daughter axe murder story. It's shocking to people that this happened in 1867. And I think people don't realize that a mother could kill her daughter with a axe yeah. in the head. Also, for History and Mystery, I think people are shocked about the Bessie Little story. Um, That one, the crazy trial as well. But my favorite story in the cemetery has nothing to do with murder or mayhem. It's just a good historical story with Jordan Anderson, the freed slave. Yes. I think because I met the family. I met five generations of his descendants at the cemetery on one day and took a photograph of them at his, it still resonates with me. Why don't you tell people what that story was? Because the story is fascinating. It is fascinating. So Jordan Anderson is a slave down in Tennessee and he gets on a plantation down in Tennessee. He is given to his master's son as a gift when his master's son goes and gets married. So there's a combined household. His wife brings a couple of slaves and then the son brings a couple slaves. And then that's how Jordan meet his wife Amanda and they get married have 11 kids well by 1864 he receives his free papers and he immediately hightails it off the plantation and he gets a job at the Nashville Tennessee hospital and he is offered to go up to Dayton here to start a new life and of course even though slavery's been abolished, it wasn't as free as people thought it was, you know, so he took the opportunity to come to Dayton, live totally free. And um, the gentleman that brings him to Dayton is actually Valentine Winters. Yeah, who's famous. Famous, you know, Winters Bank. Valentine Winters gives him some jobs, steers him in the right direction. During the time that the VA Center, which was known as a National Home for Disabled Veterans, Soldiers and Veterans, Jordan was one of the guys who laid the first stakes in wow. to build the medical center. So that's very, you know, Jordan as a slave having these opportunities. Eventually, Jordan dies of exhaustion. But the big story here is that as soon as he gets to Dayton and his former slave master finds out where he's at, his former slave master writes a letter to him and says, why don't you come back down to the farm? Yeah, come on back down. Come on back down. Jordan writes a letter back. Actually, Valentine Winters helped him. Valentine Winters helps Jordan write the letter because Jordan cannot read or write. Valentine Winters was an abolitionist. So there's some very pointed information in that letter 
and you can tell that it's very, it has the, has the words from a white man. Some of the words is, is hard to read in today because the language, but that was the language in 1864, 65. So anyways, the letter is written and then Valentine Windsor sends it to the newspaper. It gets picked up in Cincinnati, gets picked up in New York, and then it goes international. And people thought that the letter was fake, but it really wasn't. And basically it's, Jordan saying back to his master, maybe I'll come back if you pay me. And back he, wages. Back wages. And he had worked for his slave master for 32 years and then his wife for 23. So uh, basically he asks for $11,000 in back pay plus interest. That's yeah. a good part of the story. But he also talks about defrauding labors of their hire. A, a day of reckoning will come. So, I mean, there's this is 1865. It really translates into today. Some of the things that's going on today about uh, reparations for former slaves and things like that and race relations and, and just all kinds of things. So it's a really a good letter. It's a good history lesson for people. Several years ago, it resurfaced. It resurfaces about every four or five years. Yeah. Um, last year, we had Dr. Roy Finkenbein from Detroit Mercy University come who is researching the whole background of the Jordan Anderson family. And he came in and did a uh, lecture at Woodland. And it was just fascinating, um, his perspective of what happened and why everything happened and how it transpired. But, you know, Valentine Winters was a true catalyst in making Jordan have a fulfilled life after slavery. Well, his children too were like, one was named for Valentine Winters. Yes. And he turns out to be a doctor. Yes. He turns out to be a doctor and he is very good friends and went to school with Paul Lawrence Dunbar. And one of his other sons, Felix Grundy, he was a captain with the Buffalo Soldiers fighting out West. Right. And which was a huge deal. There's really good history there. Go Google Buffalo Soldiers and see what they did. And, you know, so. It was amazing, too, because of that find your grave site and all that. You can actually find people's graves. You can find people's pictures, which is amazing to me. Yes. We have great photographs of Jordan Anderson, some of his children, all of the headstones, newspaper articles. His wife, Amanda, died about a month after the 1913 flood. She was in her 80s at that time, and her home on Burns Avenue, which is about two blocks north of the Miami Valley Hospital, was flooded, and they had to rescue her by boat. Oh, wow. And it put a lot of stress on her, and she ended up dying about a month after all of that had happened. Her death was caused because of the 1913 flood. Put in perspective history, you think, oh, that was so long ago. The 1913 flood was not that long ago, and slavery was not that much longer than that, you know, from that. So that's really fascinating stuff for sure. Yeah, I mean, there are grandparents today that remember their grandparents who were slaves Mm -hmm. and can tell firsthand stories from their grandparents. It is not that far removed. Young, young country. Young, young country. Oh, well, hey, Angie, thanks a lot for coming. Was there anything else you wanted to say that I didn't ask you? Uh, No, like I said, I have 110,000 stories. I could come back, chat with you some more. But no, thank you very much for letting uh, uh, us, me from Woodland, come and chat with you and tell you some of our stories. This is a a very special time of the year. Come out and visit us as the leaves are changing and get some fall color and just enjoy the beautiful weather that we're enjoying. Perfection. Thank you. Yay. That was fun. Always fun. (laughs) Neither Woodland Cemetery nor Angie ever disappoint. Wasn't she great? Be sure to check out Woodland Cemetery's website to find out about all the tours and special events they hold throughout the year. And while you're at it, listen to my first show with Angie. 
we tap into her personal story, which is quite fascinating, and other ghostly tales from Woodland Cemetery's most prized residents. The What Had Happened Was podcast is written, produced, and edited by me, Amelia Robinson, in the always spirited WHIO Radio Studios. The show's artwork is by my scary good friend, Troy Lyman of TL Creates of Columbus. Until next time, don't sash your mama and watch out for the axe if you do. Bye-bye. Muhaha. Ha-ha. 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 Ha-ha.